Welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is by public service leaders for current and future public service leaders. If you would like to hear what the ministers and politicians are thinking, then there are numerous other podcasts where you can tune in to find out what their latest thoughts are. This podcast is about the inspirational people designing and leading frontline public services. This is about the people who do the real work. On the podcast, you'll hear from leaders from councils, from within the NHS and other public services, and also those involved in policy development. I particularly try and find people who have interesting stories to tell and have achieved really difficult things in challenging circumstances and who have learned lessons along the way and uh, who are, are keen to share those lessons with others. Because as I think as we all know, public service leaders are not prone to shout about their achievements, but um, it is really important, especially now with so much pressure on public services, that those leaders do share the lessons that they have learned about what works and what indeed does not work. So I hope you enjoy it and don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And indeed, you might want to catch up on some of the previous episodes. This episode is with Chris Naylor. Since 2014, Chris has been the Chief Executive of Barking and Dagenham Council. For 10 months last year, he was seconded to Birmingham City Council, and last year he was also named as the MJ's Chief Executive of the Year. So as you can imagine, there was lots of stuff for us to discuss, in particular how Chris has worked with colleagues to try and encourage inclusive growth economically within Barking and Dagenham, how he has also worked to try and move public services away from responding to crisis to actually getting in there and supporting people before they reach crisis point. And then really important for Barking and Dagenham, we talk about the issue of trust and building trust between the council and residents. And this is, of course, against the backdrop of Barking and Dagenham having elected 12 BMP councillors back in 2006. As you would expect, we also touch on Chris's time in Birmingham City Council last year. And then using his experience of that, we get into a discussion about what the right size and scale of a council is to have the most meaningful impact for its residents. So I hope you enjoy this discussion. Chris, a very warm welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to have this conversation. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just saying a little bit about who you are for those who are listening who may not know you. Well, thanks, Andrew. It's a real um, pleasure to be here and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, Yeah, so if folk don't know me, I'm uh, Chris Naylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the London Borough of Barking and Dagenham, a job I've been doing now for almost seven years. I got the job at the end of November 2014 and I have to tell you it's been brilliant. Um, uh, and you know sort of prior to that I've been in and out of local government pretty much all my career. But you know the one thing I tell a lot of people when they ask me sort of just to say a bit about who I am and stuff is I always slip in the fact that I was born and brought up in Rotherham in South Yorkshire right and um and I say that because I think it's just, it, it kind of has stuck with me, those experiences as a kid in the sort of 70s and 80s, you know what I mean, in in that part of the world. And 
Yeah, and certainly it was part of it was part of the reason why I always wanted to work in Barking and Dagenham. So I don't know if you know the borough, but it's um it almost feels like a sort of um a bit of a bit of the north plunked down south, you know. And right. um, and certainly when I first when I first moved to London when when I, I did quite a bit of work in Barking and Dagenham with a former employer and um it always reminded me of home, so uh Yeah, what is it about what is it about Barking and Dagenham that reminds you of up the north? So I don't know if people know the the borough. It's um it's a East London borough, sort of former kind of in part of the kind of industrial heartland of East London. For the sociologist uh, uh, amongst your listeners, I'm sure many of them. Uh, <laughs> the thing about B and D is it's a post Fordist borough in all senses of the word, right? So it's kind of in a social and economic sense of the word, you know. But also it used to have a massive Ford factory that employed. 55, 60,000 predominantly white working class men, yeah. which for kind of, you know, 30 years, 30, 40 years, well, you know, for almost a century actually was, uh, you know, a kind of principal employer. And think about some of those northern Mets like my hometown of Rotherham, you know, for many, for a century it was a steel and coal mining town. And over the last sort of 30 or 40 years, those industries declined rapidly in some cases. And you know, left whole swathes of the population sort of A, without a job, and B, sort of, you know, really thinking about what their identity is and yeah. all that sort of stuff. So, you know, so in that regard, it's very, very similar. It's, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, all of that. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for explaining that. So, as you said, you've been chief executive at Barking and, and Dagenham for nearly seven years, and that's accepting the 10 or so months that you were in Birmingham, which we will come on to later. But in the public conversations that you've been having, you, you always mention three key priorities. Number one, achieving pace and scale in terms of economic growth and in particular about achieving equality in that growth so that everybody benefits from it. Then the second thing is developing a system that supports people before they actually get into trouble. And then the third point that you talk about is is about building trust between the council and residents. So um, I'd be great just if you could say a little bit about each of those in turn. So let's start with economic growth. Yeah, let's do that. And I think so. Let me just give you a little bit of context. I think why those three things, where they came from, why it was why was it important? And let's just just quickly remind ourselves. So it links back to this point about the sort of up north down south point, right? So the context. Um, so you know, Barking and Dagenham, it's a East London borough. It's um, a kind of a place where sort of everything sort of hopeful and fearful of in you know the 21st century kind of plays out on a kind of daily basis. Huge challenges around you. Know, Fiscal challenges, demographic challenges, big social and economic challenges of the kinds I've just been talking about. 2001, just under 90% of the population, 90% of the population was white British. By 2011, it's about 48% was white British. Huge, you know, huge change. And as most of your listeners will remember, back in 2006, in this context, 12 members of the British National Party were elected to the council. Yes. Something that was no less remarkable because it only stood 13 candidates, right? So this was, and I think there's, you know, there was a there was a view that had they stood in more seats, they might well have taken a council, which uh, was clearly, uh, and I say this without making a party political point, a very sort of challenging. Uh, yeah. Anyway, the point I'm, I'm getting to really is that it was a kind of, I think, a real wake up call for for this place and uh, politically, and I think for sort of people like uh, me. 
and a sense that there were some real challenges here, uh, that kind of no one was coming to the rescue and that in, in essence, the sort of the place of Barking and Dagenham had, had to kind of start to define its own future in a much more positive way. And that's kind of it was that thought process that got us to those kind of three buckets of priorities. So yeah. you've got lots of challenges, but one of the the key things going for the for the book, it is also 25 to 30 minutes away from one of the most successful city economies on earth. It's in a part of London that is, you know, growth is moving eastward and has yeah. been for the last 25, 30 years. And so I guess the kind of the mission of missions for Barking and Dagenham is how do we kind of seize the prospect of that growth? It's a huge gift and opportunity, not dissimilar, I might say, to the one that exists in Birmingham right now, to to kind of get that growth, get more of it and to put our arms around it and to to really make it work for the, the residents of the borough. And kind of quite frankly, I think if we can't do that, we don't deserve to be in business. Right. Yeah. Um, because however which way you look at demand, need and the sorts of things that are kind of uh, driving people towards our most expensive services, if we can improve their material condition, the, the costs of living, the income in their pocket, then that is the kind of thing that can change that can change everything. So yeah. mission number one, let's flip yeah. it, seize the opportunity, not wallow too much in the difficulties. Let's go for that. I think a key point of that is within Barking and Dagenham, there is room for growth in terms of housing and new businesses as well. Yeah, that's right. So I think part of our kind of post-industrial kind of legacy is that we've got a lot of land. Uh, it's uh, primarily brownfield land. But in sort of numbers, that space for kind of 60 to 70,000 new homes. We've got very underutilised, quite old fashioned industrial areas which are ripe for regeneration and, and intensification. So I guess the point here is, you know, we're in the middle of a housing crisis where we're on the not that far away from a very successful economic place. There are international investors wanting to invest in London. So the question really is, how did we make that work for the people of Barking and Dagenham? And I suppose it's kind of like two aspects of that, really. So one is, how do we kind of make the growth work from a kind of commercial and fiscal perspective? Frankly, with growth of that magnitude, someone's going to make money. Right. So how do we make sure that one of the people or institutions making money is the council? Right. So that was kind of exam question number one. Uh, and exam question number two is, and how do we make that growth work for the people who need it, need it the most? Yeah. And that's kind of that's everything from kind of jobs. But I suppose in, in the most simplest of terms, how do we make sure we're building houses that normal people can afford to rent or buy? That was the question. And that kind of led us to, amongst other things, creating our own growth and regeneration company. It's partly can it kind of be have some kind of commercial skin in the game, a kind of a vehicle for the council investing itself in in growth. Um, it led us to create our own housing company. I know lots of councils have done this, but we've absolutely gone for it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, sort of five years on, we've tripled housing delivery in the borough. We were kind of had a run rate of around about seven to eight hundred homes a year. So it's going to take a century to build out these homes. We're now at two and a half to three thousand homes a year. So yeah. that century has turned into 25 to 30 years. Uh, this last year, just under a quarter of all affordable homes being built by councils in London are being built in Barking and Dagenham. Wow. And, yeah, B First has just sent its first dividend check of 10.3 million back to the council, 
which, you know, when we put council tax up by 1%, we raise about 700 grand, right? So by having sort of genuine, I hate horrible phrase, but skin in the game of the growth of the borough, yeah. we're like delivering fiscal returns to the council of a magnitude that just dwarfs what we could raise in tax, right? Yeah. And we're using that money now to pay for some of the preventative work that we're doing. So look, the growth thing has been like just huge for us and it's been difficult and challenging and we've had to think about it and got a lot of boring stuff around governance and investment strategies and so that's another one. I think I think that's really fascinating, the idea of the council being very entrepreneurial and generating income in that way. I think that's really interesting. So Moving on to the second point, then, if I can, what what does it you mean? And we, we hear words like this a lot, but what is it that you really mean in Barking and Dagenham by the idea of working with people before they get into trouble? Yeah. So we, like all councils, we work with individuals and families who have a whole host of needs, right? Some of which are just with them for life, right? And we're here to help and support them as, as you'd expect. But I think many of us know that quite often people come to see us where you think, crumbs, if we'd, if we'd just been able to work with you a couple of years ago or support you in a different way or um, offer some advice or connect you with somebody else, uh, we could have helped you resolve this issue before it got anywhere near the severity it's got to, right? And I think, as you say, this is like absolutely in the kind of this is not rocket science. Lots of people are grappling with it. But I think the kind of the conclusion we came to and there was, you know, there's one statistic when I joined the when I joined the borough. That the uh, so notwithstanding the fact that we're so close to this kind of economic powerhouse mm. um, and that you could get on a train and be in the heart of the city in 30 minutes from Barking, that the average healthy life expectancy of women in Barking and Dagenham in 2015 53 years old right so yeah. that's the age where essentially you you know you're still alive but you've you've got some sort of underlying series of health conditions which are in some way holding you back maybe you can't work full-time or in some other way your life is curtailed, right? that was catastrophic and the reason why i mention it is because you know we in 2015 in the history of mankind we never spent more money on health and social care embarking down than ever before and so for me, the answer to that problem was not spend more money on health and social care. I'm not quite saying don't spend more money on health and social care. But what I'm sort of saying is like one way of addressing that issue is supporting that woman once she's got those lifetime health conditions. Or alternatively, let's figure out what earth has gone on in her life for that to be the situation. Yeah. So it was kind of it's a moral thing. And it's also kind of like a sort of fiscal economic thing, which is we just simply cannot afford to keep responding to the needs that people have because they're in that condition, which then took us to, I think, this this notion around you can have all the economic growth you like, but it's got to interface with people and their lives as they are now. And so for us, it's a bit of a Venn diagram where the kind of growth bit has to intersect with that kind of wider preventative agenda that connects people to the prospects of growth and understands in quite a systematic way What's structurally holding them back? Does that make sense? Yeah. So, like, yeah, it does. Um, I mean, I could say, I could, uh, we could talk about this, uh, the whole podcast, right? You mentioned this not being rocket science, but actually, I think shifting resources from dealing with crisis towards prevention when there aren't very limited resources is probably the closest 
thing to rocket science that we've got in local public service delivery because it is not it's not easy to do it's not easy to do so i think what we've tried to do is within the constraints of the system we work in we've we've absolutely gone at it just to see what the other possible is yeah. and i think it's undoubtedly the case that what we're kind of dealing with here and this is like i'm sort of i'm summarizing a phd in sort of three sentences now but there's hmm. definitely a problem with the way in which the sort of post-war welfare state works which in simple terms is you have a need and then we test whether or not you meet a threshold right and then we and then we kind of provide a service if you do and yeah. that prevailing sort of design of public services alongside austerity where thresholds get higher and higher and higher effectively has the effect of pushing away from public services, the very, very people we want to have the most proximity to if we're trying to work in a preventative way. So first of all, just recognising that a business as usual approach to austerity was actually making the problem worse, not better. If you then recognise that, we we sort of also felt that, you know, you couldn't just make this about cultural change. It wasn't good enough for us just to say we've got to work in a preventative way. We've got to be systems leaders like we had to sort of take apart how services were operating and put them back together again so that they um, so that they actively seek out the root cause of why someone is coming to see us in the first place rather than treat the, the presenting need. Probably the best example of that, although we've got a number, but this is the one that I think I can evidence the most was around homelessness. Right. So 2015, 2016, if you felt you were becoming homeless in Barking and Dagenham, like most councils, you go to the homelessness department that usually was sitting inside the housing department, right? And essentially what was happening was we were testing whether or not you met a statutory threshold to get some sort of uh, relief from the council. If you were, quote, lucky enough, in inverted commas, to meet the test, then what would quite often happen is that we would find you somewhere not very nice to live, often quite a long way away from Barking and Dagenham, and it was causing us a financial problem as well because we weren't able to recover all the costs, et cetera, et cetera. And while it was an outcome, like people had somewhere to live, it wasn't a great outcome. Now, now that we've we've created this department called Community Solutions, it's brought together big chunks of adults, children's housing, homelessness, drug and alcohol, debt management. The question that that people get asked now when they come through the door is, why are you homeless? What is going on in your life that is causing this to happen? And can we help you with that issue rather than jumping straight into let's do the statutory test? And and then when you do that and when you start to work with people in that way, you start. And this is not again, this is not a terribly profound thing to say. You start to get like patterns of the same sorts of things coming through the door. Right. So people have tipped into debt or they may be experiencing some form of domestic violence uh, or some other kind of family breakdown. Once you kind of understand that through a data lens, you yeah. can start to you know attach attributes to folk and you can start it sort of follows therefore that if debt is one of the principal reasons why people become homeless, we can start to build a model that says, well, who else has tipped into debt recently? Yeah. And do we think they're likely to be able to cope with that debt or not? Because if they're not, as sure as God made little apples, they could well become clients of ours in a year's time. Does that follow? I know it's kind of a lot. It in- does, yeah. So do you use predictive analytics in any way when you're looking to Absolutely, put yeah. some of these ideas in? The, yeah, OK. And 
you're finding that that really helps. That's kind of a big step change. And I mean, it, it sounds like without it, this would all be just an aspiration rather than a real thing. Yeah, I think that's right. So I think I think there's at least three different things going on here. One is a kind of organisational change, right? So we've we've literally sort of taken teams and put them together, right? So we've got people who used to work in children's services now sitting across a desk from people who used to work in Revs and Benz, right? Yeah. The Christmas party is interesting because it's like you know the Jets and the Sharks come together and you know, <laughs> uh, quite, but then but they unified in a common mission around supporting people. So there's a kind of organisational change bit. There's then absolutely a kind of, and there's a sort of process change and pathways and business process to re-engineer, all that kind of stuff. But then absolutely there's a data and insight model that sits underneath it. And I think I think if you if you do the data bit without doing the organizational change bit, what you get is a load of insight, but you can't do anything with it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Whereas and again, I don't want to over like overstate this and you know suggest that you know have Jean-Michel Jarre playing in the background or something, but the like the data insight is not that complicated. I mean, the, the point I was making about debt is one of the first organisations to find out if someone's got financial problems is the council, yeah. because almost everybody pays us money. Yeah. And so it's, it's not it's not a massive switch of the dial to say to the council tax people, if someone you can get a little algorithm that says if someone's been paying their council tax routinely for the last decade and then they miss three months worth of payments. There might be a problem. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Whereas that in the past, our instinct would have been like immediately to write to them to say, hey, you owe us some money. Now what we do is we send them a text message to say, are you struggling with money? And if so, why not give us a call? Chris, I, I think that example really brings that to life and certainly does for me, at least. Um, and then the, the final issue that you mentioned there, the third issue was the, the issue of trust. So. Was or or is there still a lack of trust, do you think? Yeah. So we're talking today, uh, whereas it's beginning of August, right? And the news today is dominated by stories of unvaccinated people dying in intensive care and their last words to their relatives and to the doctors treating them is, I wish I'd taken the vaccine, right? And why haven't people taken the vaccines? Because they don't trust it. They don't trust people like me who are telling them that this is a really good thing to do and it will help. Right. So. And I think if you think about it in. So why why this became so important to us in B&D was because I think we we'd seen at the start of this century what happens when people really stop trusting. The council. Yeah. They vote, they go and vote for fascists, right? So it was like, and again, I'm saying that in a sort of non-past political sense, yeah, but right? They, 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 this this was a this was a, a a cry of pain, saying, "Look, you you're not you're not hearing our experience. We've lost our confidence in your ability to hear what we're about and do something about it." So I think this notion of sort of a reconnection. Yeah. Actively listening to people and saying that we're on your side. We really are. We might not always get it right, but this is what we're trying to achieve on your behalf. For me, when we do our residence survey, like absolute success when we ask people, you know, what do you think of the council? If they kind of shrug their shoulders and go, yeah, they're all right. I'm like, I'm like running around with my pants on my head going, that's brilliant, right? <laughs> because, you know, that is praise indeed, you know, yeah. and, 
And it, for me, it's a precondition for, for all the other difficult conversations we've got to have. Over the next decade, we're going to be talking to people about changing their lifestyles in relation to climate change. We've just had it recently, as I said, with COVID. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff where basically if people don't believe us, don't feel that we've got their best interests at heart, then they're just not going to hear it and we're not going to be able to achieve what we need to achieve. So do you think um, uh, an ultimate goal for a council is to be quietly efficient and effective in the background to enable people to get on with their lives? Or or do you think that people, in order to build a real sense of place, the council needs to be noticed and recognised in what it's doing? Well, I think it's I think it's both of those things. And. I think it's worth us unpacking for a second what we mean by kind of quietly and efficiently getting on with it in the background. And so for me, and I felt this for a very long time, actually, that sort of basic customer services are absolutely fundamental to the business of winning trust. Right. So for a lot of people, their only interaction with the council is when they ring them up to get their parking permit or to uh, pay their council tax. If that engagement is not beautiful, and I use my words deliberately here if that is not a wonderful experience for people that is literally their entire experience of the council for that year and they will base their judgment upon it right so we've got to get it right but i also think it's a, it's a bit of a mindset that just asks i i ask people all the time to think look every engagement they have with the council is an opportunity to either win trust or destroy it and winning trust uh, well, you destroy trust very easily. Winning it back is really hard, right? So how about we really try not to destroy it? A couple of years ago, we were tearing our hair out because we were literally building thousands of affordable homes across the borough. You couldn't move for bloody cranes and bricks and God knows what. Yeah. And we knew that we were building them for people, for people living in the borough who could genuinely afford them, right? So a couple on the minimum wage, an individual on the London living wage could afford to rent one of the houses that we were building. And yet in our residence, and we kept putting messages out saying this all the time, in our residence surveys, however, people kept coming back and saying, you're not building them for people like me. And we were like, we literally are building them for people like you. Anyway, we tried to get under the skin of it. And what we realised was that a lot of the kind of images and messages that particularly the developers were kind of using to brand and market these homes, they were classic. It was like, you know, beautiful young couple on a Sunday eating a croissant and drinking freshly squeezed orange juice in their beautiful bijou or flat. Like, weirdly enough, like, people in Dagenham were walking past them going, they don't look like me. Right? And so it was a very simple thing. So if you you walk around Barking Dagenham now, you see pictures of social workers and teachers and mums pushing buggies and, like, dads in t-shirts and the strap line is we are literally building houses for people who look like you do on this. <laughs> I know it's a bit sort of, I'm labouring the point, but actually it's really important. Connecting people to the regeneration benefits of the borough, really important to us. A bit more Greg's, a little less prep kind of thing. It's been really important. Yeah. Because that's a kind of a reasonably simple, straightforward thing to fix. Let me give you an example that's kind of much more difficult and challenging to fix. So we've been looking at the journeys of children and young people into the care system. Bearing in mind that if we bring a child into care, it costs us, I don't know, one hundred and twenty, hundred and fifty thousand pounds a year to look after them, potentially for two decades. Financially, not good for the individuals concerned, catastrophic in terms of the start to their lives, despite our best endeavours. So it's really important for us kind of from a data and insight point of view to understand those yeah. 
like what's what's going on there. Anyway, um, in Barking and Dagenham, we found 71 women who between them had had 237 children brought into care right, of, their, of their children, right, which is as terrible as it sounds. So these are often quite young, often traumatised young women who have given birth on a Monday, say, and on a Wednesday, one of our social workers goes into the hospital takes the child, removes the child from the mum. And and then sort of a year, 14 months later, the pattern's repeated and then repeated, right? And and quite often we find that these women have been through the care system themselves. So you're in this compounded intergenerational issues. Now, on the one hand, you could say the council has done its safeguarding job and its responsibilities, right? It has understood a child that is in need of protection and has fulfilled its obligations but at what cost you know what cost to the mum what cost to the child what cost to the taxpayer yeah. catastrophic right the point i'm making here is that that this is you could look at this as a story about data and insight because what because now we know that we can't unknow it and immediately you think to yourself well goodness me then surely if we can help and support that woman kind of understand what's happening with this pattern of conception and trauma and there's there's something going on there so if if we can work with that young woman in a different way maybe we can support her to kind of overcome that trauma and and perhaps in time become a parent who's you know whatever right but if you think about it the reason why this is super hard is because the last people that woman would ever want to talk to are the council that keeps taking their kids off them yeah. Right. And so for me, this point about data and insight, like, yeah, it's really great. But what it takes you to is a conversation about intimacy and trust. Who is best placed to have that to reach out to that woman and say, how can your life be different? Really difficult for the council to start that, initiate that conversation when we're the people who are compounding that trauma. Does that make sense? So it does. Yeah. It's I don't know. So. And so therefore, for me, this point about um, reform and trust and prevention and supporting people before they tip into crisis very quickly becomes a conversation about proximity and sort of the role of non-state actors, IT and community organisations and potentially peers, other mums who've been through this experience themselves and who can share and learn and grow from one another. That becomes the core business of the council. Yeah. That's yeah. different from what we were designed to do when Beveridge and, you know, all of that were thinking about the welfare state 70 years ago. It is. I think you're talking about the pause programme there, aren't you? I'm talking about the pause programme. Yeah, yeah. So you'll be you'll be really pleased to hear. So Sophie Humphreys, who founded Pause, was the very first person I interviewed on this this <laughs> uh, podcast series. So I worked with Sophie right back at the start, helping her to set up. Pause. But yeah, no, I, I recognised it immediately, actually. And uh, it, it's a brilliant example of what you're talking about there. I think so. And and so I suppose if you just take that little vignette and then say, OK, so let's imagine that the public sector was designed from first principles to do that. Every single time it comes across an issue or a concern or a um, a need yeah. That it would, first of all, to say, where is the where is the capability and capacity that doesn't exist inside the council that could help? Because they're probably better placed to to support. Yeah. Then I think yeah. public services would look profoundly different. 
it's been a theme of some of the conversations I've had, actually, where the council accepts that it doesn't have to directly do everything itself, which I think is a very realistic view of the world, given everything, resources and the capacity and capability that there is out there in within communities as well. So. I think that's right. And well, I mean, I think the, the, the best example of it is the Wigan deal, isn't it, which essentially is predicated on the notion of a sort of a conversation about what's the role of the state, what's the role of civil society, what's the role of individuals, how do we reframe that? And for me, I just think that's a far more fruitful place to start the conversation than one that's about should we have more unitary councils? Have we quite got the sort of the, the, the ICS structure quite right? Do we need to tinker with the regulatory regime? No, no, it's like that. I mean, they're all important questions, but start with, don't start there, start over here. That is important. That is really important. Um, Chris, I want to ask you about Birmingham now. So you were the interim chief executive there for 10 months or so over the pandemic. And at the same time as Birmingham was also in quasi-intervention and at the same time preparing for Commonwealth Games. How was that? Well, it was uh, it was busy. Yeah. (laughs) But I suppose but I think the job the job was pretty clear. Right. So there was a sort of leading an organization through a through the pandemic you know, there was a certain kind of rhythm to the day that went with that and as you might imagine and to some extent therefore that was you know that that sort of kind of happened i guess and similarly with the commonwealth games there was some sort of specific deliverables the council are on the hook to do you know small things like build an athlete's village build a stadium you know, yeah, they're all kind of in like the, they're all in the sort of don't cock up box. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so like, yeah, yeah, all yeah. A certain sort of uh, dynamic. I mean, inside that council, there are some really brilliant people. And day in, day out during that time I was there, they were working their socks off and doing brilliant things. And I think the other thing is amongst the kind of key partners across the city, there is, there is and was a real desire to see the council be the best version of itself that it could be. So I, you know, the number of partners who would say to me, you know, we really want and need the council to be the kind of the, the place leader in this city. You know, it's, I think that's just a valuable thing to hear, right? Because yeah. it's not always the case, I think, that sort of partners are, they might be often asking us to dial it down a bit. I think in Birmingham, there was a kind of like, come on, guys, you can do it. <laughs> yeah, no, it isn't. I mean, as somebody who works in, in a lot of, local areas that's not always the case so i think it it is a good point to make and not something that everybody would assume yeah i think that's right so look, i think i mean birmingham as a an organization has got some systemic challenges that it needs to overcome and it's going to take five to ten years of dedicated leadership to kind of to drive that through i think there's a, a general recognition in the city that that's the case so i don't think there's there's that people are in any denial about that sort of thing. I think undoubtedly the pandemic and was a, I, I try not to use the word distraction from that, but we you know it was clearly a kind of a more important priority to be kind of uh, cracking on with. I mean, I do think they, they need to pay attention to getting a permanent leadership team in place. So if, if you think about it, over the last seven years, Barking Dagenham's had one chief executive. I think Birmingham's had seven chief execs in the last five years and that's not you know that's not sustainable really and again i think there's a recognition of that but what i would say and is that quite often 
a critique of Birmingham is that it's too big. And my view while I was there, and it's still my view, is that its size is its greatest asset. And no more was that, I think, the case than in managing the pandemic. So, yeah. you know, we'd have a regular sort of 8, 8.30 a.m. meeting. We'd look at the data, the epidemiology um, for 1.2 million people. We'd make some decisions in relation to that data by, you know, 10 o'clock. Uh, by and by midday, we'd implemented it. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, um, it, it, it's really awesome for 1.2 million people. I mean, if you look at the different sizes of councils, you, you've got places like Rutland in the East Midlands where it's a unitary, but its population is just under 40,000. You've got your own Barking and Dagenham, that's 200,000. You've got, you know, Birmingham City is bigger than some of the mayoral combined authorities which exist at the minute. So that, um, yeah, I'm sure that size of population, you know, I'm, I want to ask you about that actually, just about what is the right size of population for that level of governance? I think my takeaway from Birmingham is that starting a conversation about how Birmingham is able to kind of improve and get better, you know, you don't, I wouldn't start with a kind of, a conversation about its size, right? Because um, I do yeah. think, I do think if again, let's r- almost like rationally go back to kind of what what are the issues that that part of the world faces, and what are the opportunities that are in front of it? Yeah, and I think when you when you ask that question, its size is the big asset, yeah. right? It needs to then it needs to kind of seize that and lead it and have the capability and it's going to will the means to kind of seize that opportunity. But I tell you what wouldn't help is to then sort of waste half a decade to a decade having an argument about whether or not it's too big, should it be too different, yeah. right? Uh, it's far easier that it gets gets his act together and, and he's able to go at those opportunities, you know? I mean, just take growth. Of the, of the things we started this podcast around, you know, growth reform, the kind of trust piece. Birmingham City Council owns more land than the Queen, Homes England and Merton College Oxford, which apparently owns lots of land, combined right and i suspect the queen and merton college oxford don't generally worry about where the next meal's coming from right yeah because they take, yeah they take the asset base and they do something with it right yeah. and you know i had a lot of conversations in birmingham while i was there and i think it's one of the kind of uh, threads that they're going to kind of keep uh, pursuing is how do they make that work for yeah. birmingham in the way we've made it work in b and d because that, I think, is the that is the, I think the big the big trick for them to be able to uh, to pull that off. So, uh, so I think personally, Birmingham um, it is what it is, and uh, I wouldn't start a kind of a conversation with well, maybe you should split it in the middle. I mean, just can you imagine the absolute horror yeah. trying to go to that conversation? I think then, so can you then extrapolate from that sort of what is the ideal size for a local authority? I mean, I do think it's kind of interesting sort of. Um, slightly dull dinner party where you could sort of try and get an algorithm for what is the perfect size. And and I suppose we need to kind of, it's a bit anecdotal, but sort of, you know, probably somewhere between half a million and 700,000. Yeah. There are lots of examples across the country where there are authorities of that size and they're doing really, really brilliant stuff, right? There's a couple of London boroughs that are that size doing good things. You know, Leeds, I think, is what, 750,000, generally thought of as being a highly performing council. So there's no reason, I think, why while why that isn't couldn't be a kind of common currency. Of course, the question is how the hell you get from A to B. 
right? Yeah. And is the juice worth the squeeze, right? In terms of the kind of upheaval to kind of to to get there. But I also do think, and and this is the kind of the Rutland question, isn't it? Is there's a sort of organisational optimal size versus what's a an inherent and instinctive civic landscape, you know? And um, and those things don't always kind of marry up, do they? And I still think the kind of the most important ingredient in local government is its leadership and its ability to kind of speak for a place and to be the place that can kind of arbitrate and decide and hold to account and and inspire. And I think that does that does require it to have a degree of sort of civic legitimacy and for people to sort of think, yes, I live in that place. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Just sort of go to an extreme example of this, I suppose. Um, I'm spending some of my time at the moment supporting a woman called Kate Willard, who's the Thames Estuary Envoy. And her role essentially is to kind of bring alive the recommendations, the implementation of the recommendations of Sir John Arnott's Growth Commission for the Estuary. Anyway, to cut a very long story short, the estuary makes sense as an economic entity. It does not make sense as a civic entity. People yeah. in Kent do not see themselves as being in the same civic sphere as the people of Tower Hamlets or Newham, but they live in a similar economic area. So that's, that, that's a really interesting distinction to make, actually. Chris, I want to ask you a little bit about leadership and culture now. So. Um, in terms of being a chief executive, is there a best practice model or template that people should try and fit into? Uh, no. Right. <laughs> OK. I don't think so. No, I think uh, so. I think if I'm understanding where your question's coming from, I think there are there are lots of different kinds of chief execs out there who do the job in very, very different kinds of ways. And. I don't think one's right and one's wrong. Right? So there are lots, there are a lot of um, my colleagues out there who do things very differently to me, and there are others who do things in the I do, I do things in a similar way to them. And yeah. uh, so I don't think it's a right or wrong answer. I think that I think for me, and I, I think I've possibly come to this a bit later in my career as a kind of a recognition, is I think the most important thing is to be aware about the kind of leader that you are. And what energizes you and and the sort of the political context within which you like to work. And I think it's important that that the that those things kind of align. Because I think that's where that that's where things become difficult, I think, uh, or less optimal. And I think and I think I think that because over the last sort of seven or eight years or so in the work in Barking and Dagenham, and whether or not I kind of really understood this at the point at which I joined but kind of looking back on it it was I was very lucky I think that sort of what I'm good at what I enjoy doing what energizes me the sorts of political leadership I like working with that's the context I joined in B&D and yeah. I've had a very very close working relationship with Darren Rodwell the leader of Barking and Dagenham and the two of us have been pretty much you know joined at the hip in terms of changing the organisation and, and its role in, in the community. And, and that's been great. So can you just say a bit more about that? So what you're really talking about are the overarching conditions which give a chief exec 
a chance of being successful. Can you say just a, a little bit more about that? Because you've talked about some some different dimensions, organisational, political. Yeah. So, um, what do I mean by that? There was a. You know, when I first joined Barking Dagenham, uh, so crikey, this was like six and a half years ago. Like many of my colleagues, I sort of had a, a sort of meet the team type conference, I suppose, top three to four hundred managers in a room. And and the leader of the council came along at the end. And I'd sort of done my spiel and we'd done a kind of whatever. And Darren sat up in front of all, all of them and I basically said to them, look, I've just hired the best chief executive in the country, which was very generous of him to say that, bearing in mind. I've been a chief executive for about three and a half weeks at that point and was clearly and was clearly not true. Funny enough, he now says to me, he now says I'm the best chief executive with a beard in the country. So he's slightly. <laughs> uh, but the point he was making was that in that borough, there had been a sense of and a history of uh, members, more junior members of staff talking directly to the politicians and and either deliberately or kind of inadvertently kind of undermining the leadership, the officer leadership of the council. Yeah. And so and so so Darren, just by stunning him going, I've hired this great guy. And this was kind of almost like literally the words that came out of his mouth. Yeah, I've hired a great guy. I trust him. And basically, if he asks you to do something, you're going to do it. That was a mandate. And that was real leadership from him. Yeah. And I've never forgotten that. And. And I think he probably knows that I've got his back in the same way that he's got mine, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so I don't know if that's kind of what you're getting at with the question, really. But for me, it's not about great big sort of MBA strategy stuff. It's about... I am getting at that I, because you see a lot of excellent chief execs not being successful in places. And I mean, it's a bit like it's a bit like football managers, I think, almost where they they really well in in the right conditions but forced in, into a situation which which doesn't fit their their style or the right people aren't around them or they don't have the right in you know, football terms they don't have the right chair there that supports w- what they're trying to do you almost need to think about all those things that are are not in your control before thinking right I can make a real success of this I think that's right I, th- I think the difficulty with it and so headhunters would would say it's really important that you do your due diligence before you apply for a job, right? But in the the best one in the world, sometimes you can't you just can't you can't know some of this stuff, right? And so I think I think in reality, I mean I think I lucked out in twenty fourteen when I joined B and D. And maybe I made some of that luck and Darren made some of that luck and we and we've worked really hard. I mean it's like a marriage, you worked really hard at the relationship and that's a bit trite, but I think it's true. And so, but let's imagine it, that it wasn't quite like that. Then it is about, oh, I don't know, this sort of phrase, adaptive leadership. What does that mean in practice? I think it's as much about being able to adapt how you lead yourself as it is about science around a, a different sort of, you know, put that leadership book down and pick up the other one. Because that can't, do you know what I mean? I think it's just, yes. I think the more self-aware you are, I do think it's, I often say to, to colleagues, like, like pride in the workplace is a really dangerous thing. Like sometimes just suck it up, take a deep breath, be humble, yeah. wear it lightly. You know, you are, yes, you're the chief executive, but you're part of a system. Yeah. You know, 
I think increasingly the, the idea that just because you're the chief executive automatically gives you authority and power. I think that's for the birds, frankly, these days. I think you kind of you earn it and you win it and you you have to live and breathe it every day. And I think if you go into it in that sort of with that spirit of, yeah, hey, this might be my preference, but OK, this will work as well. Then yeah. I think that that's actually the conditions within which you'll thrive. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, so, Chris, I want to look into the future a little bit now and think about local government's place in the new world as it's emerging. So what does the future of local government look like? And, and of course, this question is against the backdrop of a currently very centralised state. There is some regional devolution, including in London, where the GLA is essentially a large combined authority. There's local government reorganisation happening in England, and there's also the emergence of the latest round of healthcare reforms, which is resulting in integrated care systems appearing sometimes coterminously with councils, sometimes not. So what does the future of councils look like with all that going on? Goodness, that's a big question. And I, my answer is almost to duck answering it. Right, <laughs> like, okay. And and the reason why I say that is because I think I think what's served us really well in Barking and Dagenham over the last sort of half decade or so has not has not been to sort of start a conversation about devolution or uh, or kind of the boundaries between what the council does and what the NHS does. But in a sense, I think to ask some kind of questions about sort of reform and how we are able to to do the three things I talked about at the start of the podcast, you know, how, do, how are we going to grow this place and how are we going to work in a way that sort of prevents things going wrong for people before it happens? And then, and how are we sort of systematically every single day going to kind of build trust and rebuild it? And I think, you know, whenever I'm sort of confronted with the latest sort of NHS restructure proposal or discussions in London about where best to locate sort of I don't know skills or economic development I come back to those three things and it helps me navigate in my own mind navigate what's the right response to those things does that make sense it does yeah and I think my question kind of suggests that there's a paper answer to this so that there's a there's a design answer that that will make everything perfect and I think your answer really is grounded in the real world where there will always be change going on and actually if you focus on those three things which you are doing it'll work and the council will be doing what it needs to do and it probably links back to your point earlier about Birmingham that if we waste years talking about the right size you actually miss the whole point you know so maybe that's I think so that's oh, okay. So I now just slightly contradict myself, right? So I suppose if, if you kind of go, if you go sort of broadly speaking, those people buy those, those three prospects as sort of things we've got to pay attention to. I think they almost then become sort of like design principles, right? For yeah. kind of, so, yeah, I'm often struck by the fact that we are essentially working in a kind of public service paradigm that was designed by our great grandparents, or in some cases, our great great grandparents, to deal with the issues and concerns of their time. Yeah. Right. And so I do think it's worthy for us to, from time to time to go, look, if we were starting from first principles, would we design it this way? Yeah. And I do think that however which way you look at that, sort of not being as centralised as we are, and and therefore I suppose to use the language that we're familiar with, which is dev devolve power and responsibility down, has to be right. 
Yeah. If if a lot of what we are about as organisations is about proximity to people, building relationships of trust with them, sort of finding agency with them, within them, within their families, within their communities, you can't do that from Whitehall. And yeah. we've seen that in the pandemic, right? The big national programmes have, this is a slight straw man, but they've they've kind of floundered where when we've empowered local authorities, but they themselves have then empowered their communities to feed vulnerable people or get millions of people vaccinated in a matter of weeks. That's where local government has been in an enabling role and has been about building capacity in the local area with individuals to make change happen. And I suppose for me, that's the devolution question. It's the sort of how you get power and resource as close to people as possible so they have as much power and control over their lives as possible. That for me is the question. You work backwards from that one. Now, look, if Rutland are doing it brilliantly with 40,000 people, knock themselves out, leave them to it, right? If Birmingham have found a way with 1.2 million people of getting the balance right, in Buckinghamshire, it's yeah. great. Yeah. It's where it's not happening and where it needs to happen is then where I think where you look at the structural answer and go, is there, is there something in the design here that is holding it back? And if the answer to that question is yes, then do something about it. Uh, so, Chris, as, as a final question, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity or social enterprise who's delivering public services? What advice would you give them if they want to make the same sort of impact that you're making? Um, so I think that point about being as self-aware as you possibly can be and to understand what energises you, the sort of leader that you are and the conditions within which the conditions you need to be able to thrive. And to understand, I guess, the sort of not quite where your red lines are, but sort of what will make it very difficult for you to do what you do. It's, it's yeah. clear as you possibly can be about that and and how you may sort of create the circumstances where you can do that. I think I said this earlier on in the podcast. I do think there's something about wearing it lightly. Yeah, I like that phrase. What do you mean by that? Well, I don't know. I just sort of think the sort of, you know, when, when my when my dad was working, he worked for British Steel all his career, and he worked. He was a research metallurgist, and he worked in a in the same building for four decades. Right, the labs on the ground floor, the people who supervised the people on the labs on the second floor, the people who supervised them on the third floor, and the bosses on the fourth. Right, and every decade, basically, my dad went up a floor. Right, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I remember going to see him as a kid, and like you know, you go through one like down a corridor, and there'd be a PA in a room and a door and it kind of had it had the ceremony of leadership right and you kind of felt the power of the position these days means nothing yeah I genuinely think that yeah. and you can sort of go in and you're the chief executive and what yeah like people like I don't care do you know what I mean it's like great you're just another bloke or a woman there's very little deference these days yeah I think so and I think maybe that's just maybe it's just my person I don't really like all that stuff but no Therefore, I'm making a virtual of necessity. But I, I, but I do think actually, like, get over it. Like, and actually, this is about you sort of lead through your actions and through what you do, and and don't just don't don't overthink the yeah that, that thing, you know. And I think would be my, my advice to everybody. Chris, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. So after this interview, I did say to Chris that I'd probably have to cut some of it out, regrettably, to make it a little bit shorter. But actually, when it came to editing, I just couldn't really take anything out because it was all so insightful and so valuable. 
Um, I think a couple of bits which jumped out at me, which are worth a little bit of further discussion. The whole idea of trying to move towards prevention, so moving away from thresholds and tests where you're either pass-fail in terms of whether you qualify for a public service or not. And the way Chris described getting staff at Barking and Dagenham when they're interacting with people to ask the searching questions and trying to understand what's really going on in their lives um, rather than just assessing whether or not they qualify for something and how he discussed using analytics and the data which the council holds in order to try and identify patterns and predict people who may be entering or just about to enter crisis, I thought was really insightful. The issue of trust is clearly something that is hugely important to Chris. And of course, this is a, against the backdrop of in uh, 2006, Barking and Dagenham electing 12 BNP councillors. And Chris describes that as a, a, a raw cry of pain and uh, frustration from people that they felt that the council just simply weren't hearing them and understanding what their challenges were. And there's a couple of really good examples in there, such as the huge building programme which Barking and Dagenham is undertaking. That idea that a lot of residents just didn't think that these properties were suitable for them. The advertising was all wrong. It was showing uh, young, upwardly mobile professionals rather than real people. And I think that whole point about changing that advertising was important. Um, and that's just one example. But Chris also talked about the tough conversations that the council will need to be having with people around climate change and their behaviours around that. And if they don't start from a position of trust, then those conversations are going to be very, very difficult. So Chris's laser focus on every interaction that a person has with the council, and as he says, quite a lot of this will just be one or two interactions a year to buy parking permits. If those interactions aren't beautiful as he describes it then that trust just gradually erodes and it becomes very difficult to have those tough conversations when the council needs to implore people to change behaviors so i hope you enjoyed this as much as i did and please remember to register on the website to follow the podcast on linkedin or twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode <laughs>